The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hello, welcome to another edition of the Agile Uprising podcast. Delighted to be chatting today with Melissa Boggs, keynote speaker, leadership coach, employee experience designer. Hello. Hi, Andy. How are you? I am doing well. Our topic today, leading, inspiring, empowering teams of the future. Before we jump right into that, for the members, the three members of our listening audience who don't know who you are, tell us a little bit about your journey and what brought you here today? Sure. Uh, So as you mentioned, I am a professional speaker. I'm a leadership coach. I specifically work with leaders who want to do things a little bit differently, uh, or maybe a lot differently, actually. Um, And I got here through a winding road, as most of us do, I think. (laughs) Um, I always start by just talking about the fact that I was very lucky to start my big girl career, my professional career at one of the best places to work. And I mean that literally, Uh, this company was on the list year after year as best places to work. Um, 20 years ago, they were well ahead of their time in terms of being a very human centric organization that was very focused on mission, vision, and values. Was that by design or luck that you, that was your first professional gig? Purely luck. It's actually a little bit of, you want a funny story really quickly? Yeah. So I was 20 years old. I was in college and I had signed up with a temp agency. Uh, one of those places that will, you know, kind of call you up and send you out to places kind of spur of the moment. And so I had been up way too late the night before. Um, we'll say that I was studying. I'm pretty sure I was. <laughs> studying something. And studying. And I got a phone call at 10 a.m. from this temp agency. And they Just said- Just when you were getting in that morning. Got it. Right. <laughs> and they said, uh, this company would love to have you uh, come. Can you be there at noon to be a receptionist, essentially, or an administrative assistant? And I almost said no. This is, I always talk about this because you, know, you always hear about the butterfly effect or you know, the, the little decisions that you make. Uh, the, the Gwyneth Paltrow movie, Sliding Doors. I almost said no, because she said that the name of the company was The Scooter Store. And I was imagining, this was the height of the first wave of like Razor scooters. You know, my little brother had one. Yeah. This is not what they were talking about. 
thankfully. This company actually provided medical equipment for those who were unable to get around on their own. So they, you know, motorized wheelchairs, scooters, that type of equipment. So luckily I said yes, showed up, and I ended up working at the scooter store for 12 years in total. There was a point that I had to leave for a couple of months because of college schedule, but all in all, totally, uh, total 12 hours. 12 hours, Jesus. 12 years. Um, like so 12 I grew hours, because, up- you know, it was one of those <laughs> best places to work. Exactly. So I always say I grew up there. I mean, I met my husband while I was working there. We got married. We had kids. We bought houses. Professionally, I grew up there. I had a number of roles back to the actual journey of how I got here with you. Number of roles across sales, learning and development. Eventually, I kind of created a process analyst role, which I did not know at the time, but essentially evolved into a product owner role. And I did most of our interfacing from our sales department and the IT department, which then eventually led to them asking me to join the IT department. Interesting. So that was, oh gosh, probably 2008. I um, started as a QA manager. In in IT, still in the scooter store. Correct. Uh, In the IT department, uh, still at the scooter store. We had a very huge monolithic homegrown software system that literally supported the entire company from first phone call to, you know, equipment build to entrance, et cetera. And for that reason, we had to be very agile. Um, And you always hear people say like, I was doing Scrum or using agile before I knew I was. And that's exactly what was the case with us. So if I'm doing the math right, so you joined in the, the mid-late 90s, right? We're there for 12 years. So somewhere in the middle of that, this the uh, the Agile Manifesto showed up. I actually started there in 2001. Got it. Um, at, when I was 20. So yeah, shortly after, or around the same time, actually, the manifesto would have been uh, appearing. Then if you imagine, it was probably about seven years, seven, eight years later when I had joined my first software team. So we had this huge system and we really didn't have a choice. Also the way that just the world was starting to speed up as we've seen since then, things like insurance policies changing, we had to be able to change our software quickly. And so we were on a monthly cadence for releases And we were doing planning with our stakeholders in the company. And again, this is where I figured out, actually, I was sort of a product owner before because I used to be in those plannings from the other side. And now I was on the software team. So fast forward, we've been doing this for a while. And my boss comes to me and says, hey, I heard about this thing called Scrum. And I think we're doing it. But can you go find out more? (laughs) And so that is how I became essentially the resident scrum expert at the scooter store, because I immediately just sort of fell in love with, you know, the concepts, the community, and jumped in with both feet. What resonated? What, what really made sense? What, what tapped into your heart of hearts that this was more than technical process, but as you described it, it's something you fell in love with? What did you see back then? So tactically speaking, it just made sense for us. 
again, because of the nature of our company and what everyone needed from us as the owners of the software, it really just made sense to be working in this iterative way, to constantly be prioritizing. Um, at the same time, I had actually been studying for my PMP, which I eventually did get, but none of what I was studying made sense in terms of how we operated you know, in our company. I'm not saying it doesn't make sense for other people, but I just, I'm studying this stuff. I'm going like, this doesn't compute with like how we have to work, but everything about Scrum made sense to the way that our environment necessitated that we work. And then just on a deeper level, I was very lucky that in that first team, that was my first time ever being a manager. Um, I really was quite close to the other managers. So we had a product manager, we had a, a um, development manager, I was the QA manager. There was a couple, actually there were two product managers. And we were all just quite tight. So it was very natural for us to want to work together and not in this handoff type of situation, right? To, to be in harmony with one another. And so that really made a lot of sense to me and to us. When, when you say manager, were you managing people at that time? Had you grown right. into a, a, a team lead, a, a, the classic, oh, you're a great individual contributor. Congratulations. Now you're in charge of the team. Somewhat. Um, yes, I was definitely in charge of a team. So I had a QA team. Actually, it was QA and app support of seven, I think. And that was my first like official management role in my career. Um, but I was also essentially the scrum master for all of us. So even though we did have these, it's hard to explain because it was very matrixed at the time. Like we still had our teams that were very functional all the QA people together on my team, but then they all also were working in what we would consider more agile teams, you know, with the developers and everyone else. So it was kind of a weird setup, but again, because we were all, we were just a really tight knit group, not just the managers, but like our department of probably 40, we were really a, a tight knit crew. So it was just very natural for us to work in tandem with one another and not be doing these handoffs like waterfall. Yeah. Yeah. It made sense. So a dozen years there and then what? So from there I had a series of jobs, but they were all agile focus. I was a, a scrum master. I spent some time strangely as a director of product management, but it was actually quite an agile coaching role. Even though I had PMs on my team, they handled a lot of the PMing and I was doing a lot of coaching in that role. And I did that for years. I mean, for a number of years until I had the opportunity to, well, let me add something else in this background. Throughout this entire time of being a scrum master and an agile coach, I became really involved in the scrum Alliance community. Mm. So I was going to gatherings, I was going to meet up, I was volunteering and just became, you know, uh, this became my people. This was my tribe. You know, whenever we would go to gatherings, it was like summer camp. You would see all your favorite people. So then fast forward to uh, late 2018, I am living in Denver and the Scrum Alliance is looking for a chief Scrum Master and co-CEO. And I was terrified, if I may just admit that. <laughs> I did not know if I was even remotely qualified. Um, I was a CEC by that time, a certified enterprise coach. 
and a certified team coach. But this was the dream job. Like this was the opportunity to have an impact on the company that had had such an impact on me. Yeah. Because I fully believe I would be nowhere near as far in my career as I am if I had not had people surrounding me. Supporting you. Supporting me, um, advocating for me, teaching me all along the way. For me, that started with this Rem Alliance community. Now it has since, I am very fortunate to have grown that far beyond only this Rem Alliance community, but that's really where it started for me. I mean, my first gathering, I knew no one in this community at all. I was very much an island in my company. There were no other Agilists in my company. I mean, I was alone. So it really did change my life when I started to become part of this community. It's great how you found that tribe. You describe part of your journey as employee experience design. Can you unpack what that means? Sure. I think like most of us who got into the agile space through IT, it doesn't take long to see that it can't stop there. And so the first couple of years, you know, I really focused on software teams, but you realize that if you don't have an impact on the rest of the organization, then your work in those software teams is only going to go so far. Right. So, you know, a number of years ago, I began to realize that like, this was really about, you know, culture. And I say that we all began to realize (laughs) that this was about organizational culture and how can these principles influence the entire organization to help us all become more agile. When you combine that with the fact that I grew up at the scooter store where employee experience was paramount, where, you know, for some time I was in learning and development, I was a trainer and it all just sort of comes together for me to have recognized in most recent years that the thing I care about the most is that employees are connected to the work that they do, that we provide them with everything they need in order to do that work and we trust them to do the work. And so while I am still deeply in love with Agile principles, I don't only do Agile work these days. Um, I really just help organizations be better and create relationships between leaders and their employees. Where do you start? At the leader, at the employee, when you're looking for engagement, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. The the voice that comes to my head is Jean-Luc Picard, engage. Right. Right. <laughs> right? It, it's not as simple as Melissa Boggs walking in and saying, I, I see where the problem is. You have an employee engagement issue. Engage. Where do you start? Yeah. So having been in my role, so I did get the job at Scrum Alliance um, and was the co-CEO chief Scrum Master for two years. And a huge part of my job in that role was employee experience. Um, having been in that role now. I developed an empathy for leaders that I never had before. Despite having been a director, you know, in leadership roles prior to that, there's a lot that people don't understand if you've not ever sat in those shoes of being sort of the final answer, the final responsibility. And I also came to realize like they're not all powerful. We act like and treat them like they're all powerful, but even CEOs have their hands tied at times. And so from that experience, I took away that engagement is really about the relationship between the leader and the team. 
And it's about removing the blame. So a lot of times when you have these employee engagement surveys, often the employees are pointing at the leader saying, I can't be engaged because X. And the leader sitting there going like, I don't understand why they're not engaged, you know, and they might be pointing some blame as well. And if we can actually, like Brene Brown talks about feedback as I'm not ready to give you feedback until I'm ready for the two of us to sit next to each other and put the feedback on the table or like put the problem on the table as sort of outside both of us. And I feel that way about the relationship between leaders and employees. If we can sit next to each other and work on this relationship together, then we are more likely to be successful and increase all of our engagement than if we sit here and say, well, I'm not engaged because of you and you're not engaged because of me. And here we are in this blame spiral. And so I start by having that conversation, one, just, hey, we are not going to have a blame game here. Now, I will say that despite wanting to take that and putting, put it on the table outside of both of us, there is a power dynamic at play. And so one of the things that I learned in my role is I cannot expect people to be vulnerable if I am not going to be vulnerable first. Right. I cannot expect people to be engaged if I'm not going to be engaged first. So while it's not a blame game, I do tend to start with the leader because in this power dynamic, you kind of have to take the first step. You have to, you know, be willing to change first and then people will trust you and go, okay, I'm, I'm willing to change too. That was a long answer. It was, it was a great answer and it, and it came around to leaders going first, showing that vulnerability and, and trying to make that connection. Throughout the last two years or so, things have changed significantly. It was, it's no longer, can you, can you bop into my office, Andy? We need to talk, right? That power dynamics changed through, I, I don't know if we can call it yet post-pandemic area, boatload of stuff has changed. Mm-hmm. Work from home, uh, the need for more flexibility, an awareness of balance and integration that in, in many previous workplace traditions just was not fathomable. What have, what have you seen that has impacted your approach, if anything, to, to creating empathy bi-directional between leaders, uh, direct reports, all coming with the, the goal of increased engagement by everybody. How's the pandemic changed things, Melissa, if at all? Incredibly. Um, I will say for those of us who've been in the agile world for a while, these are things we've actually been talking about for quite some time, right? And I think the pandemic just flung open the doors <laughs> and kind of increased the awareness of our need for flexibility, not just as organizations, but as individuals you know, we always needed flexibility to take care of our kids when they were sick. We always needed, um, you know, the ability to take care of ourselves and, and, you know, do the things like going to the gym or going for a run. Those are not new needs that came up during the pandemic, but the pandemic made them so glaringly obvious. Um, And I think put leaders in a position where they recognize their own needs and went, oh, I need to take care of my kids too. And so I think what I've seen is rather than like these new needs have popped up, it's just a matter of, oh, we are aware of them now. And for an amount of time, 
we saw that we could provide for those needs and still run our companies, right? We can still have productive teams and productive people. In fact, I'm not gonna be able to quote like an exact case study, but research shows that we are more productive when we take care of our needs. If you think about like Maslow's hierarchy, you know, you take care of your physical needs, then you can actually think and get into flow and be more creative and more innovative. Experience a little more joy. And, and that entitlement to joy is not just for certain layers in the organization. It should be for everybody, right? Right. Leaders, leaders have the needs at, at every level, managers, employees, direct reports. Should I add one more thing? The other thing that the pandemic changed, though, was our willingness as employees or just people to advocate for those needs and to stand up for them and say, no, I'm going to resign from this job if I don't have the ability to, as you said, you know, integrate my work in my life. Where before I think we just accepted whatever was handed to us. But in this pandemic, I mean, we were all faced with one, our mortality, <laughs> two, ourselves being, you know, quarantined in our homes for so long. We had to face ourselves and say, like, what's important? in my life? Where do I want to spend? What if I did only have, you know, a month left to live? Or what if I only have 40 years left to live? Am I doing the things that I want to do in my life? And work can be so meaningful. It really, truly can. Um, But it has to be meaningful to your life, not just something you do to, you know, um, I don't know, because you're supposed to, I guess. Yeah, you you talked about the doors being flung open. We had a podcast, it was earlier in this year, it might have been the first one of the year, on the great resignation. As Mm -hmm. people came back from the winter holidays, as they they got their fourth quarter bonus checks, cleared the bank, uh, people started scratching their heads and wondering, is it time to jump ship? What are some of the intentional strategies that you've seen attempted where there's a changing of that old status quo that was pre-pandemic, where many enterprises in February of that year said, no, absolutely, work from home is not possible. And then suddenly in March, it was, holy crap, we've got to figure this out. And and it's worked. Everybody's reevaluating everything. So what are some of these intentional strategies that we need to think about that you've been part of conversations? You have a podcast, Wild Hearts at Work, where you talk about changing the status quo. What's what's bubbling up? What are you hearing? First of all, some of the practical things that you were sort of getting close to the edge of just now, work from home, flexible work hours. The interesting thing about those is they are very practical and they are doable but they actually do require you to approach leadership differently. If your people are going to work from home, especially permanently, if they are going to be working flexible hours and different hours, then you have to think differently about productivity and you have to think differently about leading those people. And so this is where the agilists in the room are going, yes, (laughs) self-organization. This is where we truly have to get serious about what it means to allow teams and people to self-organize. Some of the strategies I talk about with 
leaders who are going in that direction, um, first of all, are context and boundaries. It's my favorite phrase. <laughs> People need the information that you have that maybe in the past you would have kept. You have to give that information to them so that they can make good decisions. They also need boundaries because one of the worst things that you can do as a leader who is seeking self-organization is give people the ability to make a decision and then reverse it. Because, quote, they didn't have the full context that you had in your head that you didn't think to share. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and also because there are going to be some decisions that if you were the CEO of the company, you have, you know, ultimate financial legal responsibility. There might be some decisions that you need to make, but let's be really clear about those decisions and the, the responsibility that you, that you have and really clear about the power that you are willing to decentralize. So I think this is where I see us, a lot of us agilists even, where we can be more help, where we can help those leaders be very clear and, and tell them that it's okay to say, look, no, if something is over $500,000 investment, that's a decision that you know, ultimately I need to make. I want your input, I want your feedback, but I gotta make that decision. But if something is, you know, if you have, this is a silly one, but like our teams, when I was at Scrum Alliance, had budgets for certain things. As long as you were in budget, it was cool. I trust you. Right. You have the information. And so those are wildly like different types of decisions. But I really try to help leaders be very clear about those decisions and then follow through. Because again, one of the worst things that you can do is give over, you know, power and then take it back. People will never make another decision with faith if you've done that. And I suspect there's misunderstanding that these decisions are just a toggle switch as opposed to current state is this, future vision is that, and we're going to go incrementally. And as a leader, I'm going to find out the context I have in my head that I think you have, but I find out you don't. I'm going to be clear about the decisions you may or may not have full uh, technical awareness about and work towards a, a, a plan of knowledge sharing. So we've got clarity and context and skill. What else? What other? You, you talked a little bit about Maslow and hierarchy of needs. What other things come into when there's this new sense of uh, how we want to work with ownership and commitment at all levels? What else? You're just teeing me up beautifully. <laughs> so I have a model that I've been working on that is somewhat similar to Maslow, but I call it Melissa's hierarchy of work needs. And these are the things that people need in order to increase their own engagement. Um, I have a talk about this and, and I'm continuing to refine it. But if you can picture a pyramid, much like Maslow, yeah, that, you know, the bottom of the pyramid are the things that are just foundational. You know, like in Maslow, those are like our physical needs. And as you go up the pyramid, and I'll describe it in a second, but as you go up the pyramid, you are kind of uh, reaching things that might be harder to do, but are also more valuable. And so um, it starts at the bottom with, with clarity and context, and then we get into craft, 
um, in order to increase their engagement, employees need to feel like they can actually invest in their craft, whatever that might be, whether that is coding or marketing or employee experience or events, you know, they need the ability to develop their craft. Then we get up into those slightly more challenging ones, which is choice and co-creation. And these are the ones that require a lot of the leader to let go of power, to create the context, you know, from below and allow people to have choice in what they work on or how they go about working on it or what hours they work. Um, and then at the very top of the pyramid being co-creation where we're actually co-creating the, the future of this organization together. We're co-creating your role together. And that's where you might see things like, like holacracy or sociocracy where team members are actually defining roles and then volunteering for them and, and energizing and stepping into those roles. I want to come back to the middle, if we may, that investment in craft. In many enterprises at scale, people are, are referred to as that R word, a resource mm-hmm. that is hired for a particular skill set, right? Go open up they the uh, the resource tool and type in what you need how do leaders enable in that scenario an investment a growth in people's development so that they become more capable at their craft so this is where we have to start talking about delivering value over sitting at my desk for 8 hours a day we have to start talking about uh, what is what is our view or our perspective on productivity? When we are willing to let people spend their time developing their craft and trusting that that development is actually going to add value, and we let that be more important than showing up and you know making sure that my Slack dot is green for eight hours a day, then like the ROI on that is so incredibly high, but that is not how we are used to thinking. I mean, even myself, I actually am now a self-employed coach. You know, I have clients who I work with and there are days when maybe I don't have a meeting until 1030, right? And I don't have, let's just say that I don't have like specific work that I need to be doing. I should be able to, and I'm working on it, like sit down and be like, I'm going to read this book for an hour because reading this book is going to develop my craft or You know, I should sit down and journal some of the things that I've been learning over the last week. I still struggle with that. And I've been on my own now for, I think, eight months. Um, I struggle with this conditioning that we have that I need to be sitting at my desk, you know, doing busy work. And so this is where, like, we all have to, it's not just the leader, like, even folks on those teams, first, they need to be made to feel safe by the leader. You know, the leader needs to make it clear or demonstrate their own investment in their craft. But then we as individuals also need to go, oh, that is that is a little bit of conditioning that I just need to be producing output rather than investing in becoming better at what I do. And my leader is demonstrating that it's okay. I need to get okay with it too. And then that helps move up that pyramid. Right. Absolutely. It helps us to feel like we have ownership 
and ownership allows us to start to make choices and to co-create. So more about that internal work that you're doing before 1030, before that. (laughs) Yeah. Because it's probably a model for other leaders. I, you know, who knows when their first meeting starts, what, what is some of that internal work look like? I should be, I should be, I should be, but that doesn't get it done. So I'll tell you, even just this morning, maybe that's where my example came from. Actually, (laughs) my first meeting wasn't until 1030, my first client meeting. And I do have some, we always have work to do, but I have some time this afternoon. And so I went to the gym this morning with my husband. That is perfectly fine. I don't have a boss who is telling me that I can't go to the gym at a certain time, but it felt very weird to be at the gym at 845. You know, we had to wait till our kids got off to school. Yeah. And so we're at the gym at 845 and I have plenty of time, but I felt like I was playing hooky (laughs) and I had to keep telling myself, I'm not playing hooky. This is important. I will be fresher today. I will be more energetic today. If I do this, if I, I was jump roping at the gym, it was quite fun, but it was definitely like, it's something that I'm quite aware of. And I, I talk to myself about all the time. I know it's conditioning, but it's not something that you can just turn off immediately. And I just, you have to keep thinking about like, no, I am, I am delivering a lot of value in, you know, the work that I am doing, regardless of how many hours it is. Hours work does not equate to delivered value. But yeah, it's definitely, um, it's a journey for sure. Yeah. We opened up talking a little bit about serendipity, right? You finding the scooters are us first job in this new way of working where you're a leader and people have flexibility have you seen ways to build in serendipity those water cooler moments Mm -hmm. those walking by the office door and and hearing a conversation in today's post-pandemic environment first i just have to say quoting one of my favorite unconventional leaders Uh, I actually went on a tour at the Zappos headquarters well before the pandemic. And I didn't get to meet Tony Shea, rest in peace. But, you know, of course, they talk about him on the tour. And one of the things they talked about was that Tony created in the office physically. So I'll get to your question in a second. What he called serendipitous collisions. And that phrase has never left me. And for him, it was things like, this is quite funny, the snacks on the different floors were very deliberate there were like if i remember it right there were like sweet snacks on the odd floors and like salty snacks on the the even floors and it was little things like that that they designed throughout the entire building that would draw people away from their desk right away from and like get them to go somewhere else where they would see people that maybe they wouldn't normally if, you know, I just, we all had the same snacks. So I just stay on my floor. And so that idea of serendipitous collisions has really, really stayed with me. But I do want to say, I think there's a balance. I think that we have to be very deliberate with creating things like that in our remote work, but also we can't overdo it because it is obvious when these things are manufactured. 
Like what I, what I loved about Tony's was that like, yes, it was deliberate, but there was no forcing people together in a zoom room and being like, let's talk about our deepest, darkest secrets. Right. Yeah. So how do we replace that? Or how do we augment that? That, That's one of the things that um, I personally been struggling with the, the connection. So your hierarchy of needs, I don't know if it was intentional, uh, it was all C's. Uh, can we sneak connection in there somewhere, right? Sure. And maybe it's part of co-creation. You can't really co-create till you connect, but if everything's scheduled and transactional because it's a 1030 appointment on our calendar, some of that serendipity is, becomes elusive. It does. I do remember like, in the earliest days, I'm trying to think of the more organic things that we did. Like in the earliest days of the pandemic, I would just, if I had an extra like two hours that I was working, but I didn't have a meeting, I would open a Zoom room and I would tell everyone at Scrum Alliance, hey, I've opened this room. Um, I'm going to turn on, we actually had two, if I remember this right. We had one that was for talking and that room was, I think, kind of always open, if I remember right. Like anyone could just sort of pop into this always open Zoom room and talk to whoever was there. It was sort of like a lunch room. But the one that I would open sporadically, I would say, I'm going to open this room and I'm going to put on some music. And here's the kind of music that I'm feeling today. So if you feel like listening to 90s hip hop and just like working, not talking, but just sort of working with each other on the screen, then let's do that. And people would show up. It wouldn't be like 50, but three or four people would show up. Nice. And if we, if we wanted to communicate, we would actually do it through the chat so that we didn't interrupt disrupt flow. Right. And then again, there was like another room where people could go and talk if they wanted to visit with other people. And we would occasionally like, Hey, I'm just going to have lunch for the next 30 minutes. If everyone wants to jump on. I like that. What else did you try? Another thing that we tried that I will say didn't work, but it wasn't the tool's fault, <laughs> is there's a tool called Wheelo, uh, W-E-L-O, and it is a virtual office. And the beautiful thing about Wheelo is like, if you're looking at it, it's basically like looking down on an office. So you're kind of looking at like a 3D floor plan. Yep. And so you've got your individual little offices, but there were also these like little couch spaces. and the thing about Wheelo is like you didn't have to create a conference call or start a Zoom call. You just, if someone was in like a shared space, you just clicked on it. We're like, hi, hey, how are you? And it definitely created more of a feeling of connection than I have to spin up the Zoom call and tell people in Slack that I'm going to be listening to 90s hip hop. Yeah. But you said Wheelo, you tried but didn't stick as an experiment? It didn't stick. And I honestly think it's simply because I tried it too soon. It was like in the earliest weeks of the pandemic, everything was in disarray and chaos. And I think it just, the timing was wrong. Um, And I say this because this has all now been corrected, but I think Wheelo got hit at the time with like some overload because all of a sudden they had a lot of customers that, you know, Maybe they're just like, I think Slack and Zoom had the same thing, right? They had to adjust their server load. And so that all just kind of culminated in kind of a perfect storm that it didn't work at the time. But I'm a huge fan of Wheelo and a huge fan of removing the barriers to connection, which is one of the things I think Wheelo does. Yeah. 
we we tried Sococo, similar thing, similar experience. Uh, the mm -hmm. timing wasn't right for when we when we kicked it off, and it didn't really stick. Yep. Anything else that you experienced through Scrum Alliance and your in your role and time there in regard to employee engagement? Oh my goodness! I mean, there were so many. Like generally speaking, not just sort of remote connection wise. There were so many things that we did that were just like what fun, frankly. Um, so I've talked about this a little bit, but um, we had a hiring process that allowed us to hire multiple people in one day where we would bring in all of the candidates. We called them guests for a role. And through a day of play and conversation, we do speed interviewing. We did lean coffee. We used the empathy toy through this series of events, um, partially inspired by Rich Sheridan's extreme interviewing, but also um, through just fun conference brainstorming with people like Zach Boniger and Jason Kearney. I, we designed this like really fun day that created community and really cut the interview process to a day. I'm not exaggerating. This wasn't like the final interview after three other remote interviews. People came in, we spent a day with them. And then most of the time, by the end of the day, the team that was hiring had chosen their person. Uh, so that was one thing that we did. Um, we actually used Scrum, which sounds crazy, but we had multiple teams. Um, we were on a two week sprint cadence. We did sprint reviews with actual members of our community for each team. Um, these teams were comprised of cross-functional, we didn't have departments and we didn't have managers. These were cross-functional teams that were focused on a specific persona. And what was cool about that is that meant that you weren't actually bound by the product either. So your job is to really understand this persona as a team. Obviously, Scrum Alliance has certifications, and those certifications were one way to meet the needs of that persona, but they are not the only way. And so by opening that up and not just focusing on the products, we weren't focusing only on certifications. We were focusing on, you know, community and connection and, and all of those things. Um, besides the hiring events, we also didn't quite get to the point of implementing this um, just from a timing perspective, but we designed a compensation system that uh, really honored T-shaped people and actually sort of divorced the job market and allowed us to stack skills. Um, so, you know, when you start asking people to, um, go beyond their job description, which we often do in agile teams. We don't always consider the fact that we're not compensating them more. Um, and so for us, I mean, at the time we had folks who had been hired into like customer support and we're amazing at that, but we're also doing marketing. Cross-functional team, right? Right, but we need to compensate them for that. And so we had designed this system that would allow us to say, here are the things that you are doing to contribute to the team, and we're going to pay you for all of them. Oh, um, beautiful. It's far more complex than that. Um, the other thing I think that was really impactful, I was just talking about this with a former team member last week. 
is our entire company, all of us, went through uh, Brene Brown's Dare to Lead program. Wow. Two or three days. I can't remember right now. I think it's two days. Two or three day course. Uh, we literally shut everything down for those days and went through it together as teams. So like we're all in the same big room, but we were sitting in our teams. At team tables, yeah. Just, it was incredibly impactful, uh, vulnerable, <laughs> uh, funny, and fun. And that felt like a turning point where we were getting beyond just functioning as teams and actually starting to operate harmoniously. Opened a lot of conversations, gave us language, you know, for when we were struggling with something, kind of the shared language that we could use. So that was a lot of fun too. So yeah, we got to do really cool things. So both a couple of those feel like follow-up podcasts to me, compensation (laughs) model, hiring events, dare to lead. They'd be all wonderful to have Melissa Boggs back yet again. I know you're quite busy and we're coming up on the end of our time. I want to give you a chance. What do you got coming up? Uh, Share some shout outs with our listening audience. Yeah. um, So I'm doing an incredible amount of coaching and I'm so fortunate to have really cool clients, but I'm also doing a lot of speaking these days because I want to go and talk about this stuff. I mean, I want to talk about what post-pandemic leadership looks like. I have a couple of keynotes coming up, a couple of meetups, and I just continue to stay connected to the community. And of course, we have a bunch of big conferences coming up for those of us who have been conference deprived for two years now. So I am super excited about that. Yeah. Uh, what are the best ways for listeners to get in touch with you, Melissa? What are your favorite channels? MelissaBoggs.com is my website where you can see what's going on with me, generally speaking. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Melissa D. Boggs. And I'm pretty active on LinkedIn as well. Or you can email me, melissa at melissabog.com. I have a question here from Jay. He's He slipped me a post-it note. He says, make sure you ask Melissa, what is your favorite modern metal band? <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, as someone who once was the lead singer of a metal band, I should be ashamed to say I have no idea because I have actually never been very big metal fan (laughs) well there you go jay another paradox (laughs) thanks again to you melissa boggs it's been a pleasure and also to our listening audience if you enjoyed this episode give us a review a rating leave a comment on that podcast platform of choice if you're first time listening and subscribe get the next one if you'd like to join the discussion, share some of your stories about leading, inspiring, and empowering teams, join our Discord server. We have well over 500 people. See the show notes or agileuprising.com for a link. And finally, support from listeners just like you. Help us cover our hosting and podcast production costs. See the show notes for details so you can become a patron. And at the higher levels, Jay will send you the Sock of the Month Club. Yes, indeed. What? Branded Agile Uprising socks to be worn at the upcoming conferences that you mentioned. Until next time, this is the Agile Uprising podcast signing out.